Welcome back, everybody. Every day is a beautiful day to talk about baseball, and we will be doing that right here on Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. The world of minor league baseball is full of interesting people, events, and stories, so we will be taking you behind the scenes at Principal Park and around baseball to bring you the stories of the events, encounters, and funny moments we've all experienced. No, we won't be ranking prospects or breaking down stats, but we'll be sharing the human side and have some laughs along the way when it comes to the game of baseball. For all past, present, and future episodes of Unwritten Rules, check us out online at iowacubs.com or on your various tablets on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple and Google Podcasts. Great episode we have today. First, I'm your host, Alex Cohen, play-by-play broadcaster of the Iowa Cubs, and we have a co-host with us, Media Relations Manager, Colin Connolly. Hi, Colin. Hey, how are we doing? We are doing pretty darn well. And most importantly, we have a guest today, decade-long big leaguer, baseball lifer, and 2022 Iowa Cup and Chicago Cub infielder, Andrew Romine. Andrew, thank you for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you, first of all, but I'm going to need you to memorize that next time from start to finish. I'm going to say that verbatim, every word, every punctuation point, and if I don't get it right, you could just cut off this this interview and, and podcast now, okay? I, I was pumped when I heard that I was going to get to talk to you guys because I knew I was going to be able to give you both crap during this whole Great. <laughs> That's exactly what we want. That's in tune with with minor league baseball and what we deserve. So That's why we chose you. We, we want you to carry that forward. Uh, before we get to your individual story, which is a lot of fun, I want to talk to you about the offseason. So for us, for us minor league baseball employees not genetically gifted enough to play the game of baseball like you, your brother, or your dad, we get to stare at computer screens, answer phones, make phone calls, look at spreadsheets, and stare at a graphic on our scoreboard, counting down the days till the first game of our season. As a player, give us some insight of what a typical offseason looks for you, starting from the last game of the season to the time you take to rest and recharge the batteries, and then when do you start prepping for the season and what that prep entails? Well, it, it was different as the years went on. So first of all, I'll tell you, when I first signed and I was with the Angels, we would go home um, end of September or October, depending on if you got called up or not. So the early years when I wasn't, I was back in September, hanging out already, usually taking off a couple weeks, maybe. And then I'm all fired up. I'm 20 something years old. (laughs) I'm not sore, not tired, don't care. So I'm back there working out like three weeks after the season ends and maybe take a quick vacation or something in in September. But usually I'd be back working out pretty quick, running, hitting, doing all of it. And then as the years progressed, it was like, oh man, I think I need another week or I need another two weeks. So it just kind of progressed into like whatever your body needed um, or your, or your brain. Like, you know, you play 10, 15, 20 years and your brain needs more of a rest than your body does at that point. So being able to be home. And when we were home, it was usually around my family. So a lot of the times uh, the off season would be going and trying to find uh, an apartment or somewhere to rent. So you don't have to live at home with your parents or something and um, just kind of catch up with family, um, go see all of our relatives, hang out, do obviously as much as you can, because you know, you only have three or four months. So and then, and then you leave and everything starts all over again. So we would usually get done with our vacation and come home and October or November would hit and it's right back to the grind. 
people don't recognize there's really not that much time between the end of the season and spring training. You think it's this big off season. It's really not. It's two and a half months. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it's not even that because a lot of guys will go play winter ball. So there was a couple of seasons where I would get home and then I would go, I go to Mexico and I'm playing ball through the holidays and then almost almost straight up until spring training. A lot of guys who live in those other countries go home and they play straight through the off season. Like they don't even take any days off. They're just playing year round, which I mean, looking back when I was younger, I probably was okay with that, but there's that time where you just need to relax and you need to like decompress mentally and not have that mental grind of just having to perform and having to physically stay fit year round. It gets pretty grinding. And, Baseball is not like any other sport where you get those days off during the week. You play every single day. I mean, you're lucky if you get one day off a week. And, and when you have that day off, you're busing from Toledo to Des Moines. 11 hours. Right. Midwest. Right. <laughs> and that's, and you try and get anybody to go sit on a bus for 11 hours and then tell me how their body feels. Yeah, it doesn't feel great. I'm not an athletic specimen, but my back definitely hurt too, so. The broadcasters have to deal with it as well. <laughs> you can only take so much Advil, I'll tell you that. It's true. It's true. You um, So you spent one year with the Chicago Cubs organization, Iowa Cubs, 2022, or should be 2021. You made it count. Now, let me see if I can recap this. Late spring training signee, joined Iowa, started a little slow, heated up, got back up to the big leagues, hit a game-tying home run off a future Hall of Fame closer, Craig Kimbrell, in front of a sold-out crowd, lived a lifetime goal playing in the big leagues with your brother Austin, pitched in a big league game with your brother Austin catching, and then announced your retirement at the end of the year. Did I recap that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't show you that beforehand. I didn't say this is how we're going to write this up. In, in that order, right? Okay, I just want to make sure that I summed it up. That's a lot. Um, if you can, now that you know, a little bit of time has settled, emotions may or may not have settled, take us through this year. What did it mean to you? So we're going to start before the season even started because I wasn't even sure if I was going to get an invite at this point. I was 35 years old. Um, I'm already looking into what's going to happen next. I had gone during the off season and got my license to be a mortgage lender so that I could start the next phase of life, you know, not not everybody's lucky enough to make millions and millions of dollars and then be able to retire at 35 years old. So 98% of the rest of us in baseball go get other careers. So I'm almost a week away from just going, okay, I didn't get an invite. It's over. Cause you know, you play until you can't play anymore. And I got like four days from spring and the twins called said, come out to Florida. So I pack up, fly out like a day later to uh, where, where are they they're down by the red Sox. yeah they're in fort myers i think fort Myer, right so i fly out there get a place and at that point you're basically paying money to play in spring training for the opportunity to make a team which i don't think a lot of people realize you you're paying for a rental car you're paying for a place to live and they're only paying you a little bit of money per week to have to live off of so most of those guys, if you're not making a significant amount of money, most of those guys are paying to play in spring training to hopefully make a team. Make it sound like a charity golf tournament. You know, you're just like you're paying a certain fee to, to go out on the field and, and play what's supposed to be you know, your career and your livelihood. And you're not even guaranteed to make anything. So there could be that possibility that you just spent 
a few thousand dollars for a month and a half, and then you get sent home, which it ended up being the case. I've, I mean, a lot of guys towards the end of the career find that out. You know, you go to spring, you don't make a team and they go, thanks for coming. Now you got to go try and find a place where everybody else already has their team set. And I know, you know, oh, poor us like baseball players, but everybody thinks that all the baseball players make a ton of money. And that's not the case. That small percentage that you see on TV who make all that money, those are a very small percentage of guys. The rest of the people in baseball are grinding like everybody else. And they're grinding in another state away from their family, not being able to fly them in for thousands of dollars on trips and rental cars and eating out all the time because you can't make food. And it just adds up, but it's a taxing life. And, and I think that side of the game is kind of hidden a little bit, but anyway, so end of, end of spring training comes up, there's three or four days left and the twins are kind of on the edge with what they're going to do with me. So we ended up taking the out, called up the Cubs and um, we had a relationship already with Hoyer and he had said, you know, come on over. We'll, we'll find a spot for you on the alternate site, send you out to South Bend and get things started. And I think they had the idea of, you know, Austin's there. There's that possibility. Um, that would be a cool story. So we go into it. No expectations. Obviously I'm just trying to make a team. Like you said, like you said, very politely, I started off slow and, <laughs> And that is probably the nicest thing that you could have said because I started off. I started off terrible. <laughs> I started off with me calling my wife in South Bend, going, "I'm not going to make it out of the alternate site. You better get ready for me to come home." So, um, luckily, things worked out to where, and I, and I'm pretty sure uh, Marty had something to do with this. I didn't get released, and he convinced them to keep me for a bit, and then. I showed up to Iowa, started slow and picked things up as the year went on. And thankfully, you know, it, it kind of got to the point where uh, my numbers were raised high enough to where they didn't want to let me go anymore. And it just kind of picked up as the season went. And I got, I got really lucky with the group that we got thrown into right there because that coaching staff, probably the best coaching staff that I've been around. Um, and I've been around a lot of teams, a lot of organizations, and the way that they ran things there was spot on. Like you don't see that type of interaction between staff and players. I, I've never seen that. And I'm sure that you guys know walking around the clubhouse and talking to those guys, there's a huge connection between them, the, um, the players and the coaches. And that can breed success and it can, it can help people's careers. So it was really cool to be able to have that experience that I had being at a bunch of different places and then being able to help communicate to the young guys that mediating position of, you know, I've been through that. You guys are in a great place, like take advantage of this and enjoy it. And not to mention Iowa was amazing. The stadium's amazing. The fans were awesome during a time when everything was mayhem with pandemic and all that uh, the fans were still there and the fans that showed up were passionate. And I find that to be common in places like the Midwest and back East, it, it's a different kind of fan and teams are really lucky to have those type of people. So um, I guess a lot of people weren't excited about this next part when they traded away the entire organization, basically. And I'm sitting in Iowa going, Oh, that's really cool. Uh, young guys are going to get a chance to go up now and, and get their opportunity to show what they got. 
and I'm, I'm on the field after one of the games and my daughter's running the bases with all the kids and everybody's having fun. My wife's over there talking to the other wives and I see Desi come out of the, the locker room and he's waving to me like that. And I'm like, looking at, I'm holding my daughter in my arms and I'm looking around and I'm like, what? What do you want from me? Like the game's over. Are you going to release me with my own daughter in my hands right now? So, so that's what I, so I looked over at my wife and I'm thinking like, what's he want to talk about? Like, are we talking about hitting like game's over, bro? Like I'm going home. We're done. (laughs) I'm off the clock. And I look over at my wife and she looks at me and I said, I got to go that way. And then she looked back at me and she kind of opened her eyes. And I was like, like, I kind of just put my head down like, all right, well, they're going to let me go now and I'm going home and we're getting a flight home tonight. And I go in, I take, I took my daughter in with me, walked into the office and there's uh, Marty sitting in there with like three other guys. And I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, well, these are the guys that are going to go up. Like I get that. I see the prospects. I see what's happening here. And he goes, Ro, oh, nice. You know, your daughter's here. Good. And I, and then my heart starts racing and I'm like, what, what's happening right now? And so he goes, well, I just wanted to let you guys know you're all going up to uh, Washington to meet the big league team. And I was like, I'm like about to cry. You know, I've been a 35 year old man with a kid in his arms. And I'm thinking, what, what are the chances that this happens? Like while I'm holding my two year old and I got to experience that with her. So I walk out and I go over and I talk to my wife and I'm like all teary eyed right now. And she's like, what the heck is going on? And I said, we're getting on a flight and now I'm playing games with her. And she's like, She's like, well, where are we going? What are you talking about? We're going home. And I was like, no, we're going up to the big league team. And she's like, you got to be kidding me. And I was like, I'm not kidding you. I would never joke about this. So we had, we had a great moment together and shared it as a family and then jumped on a flight. They hung out in uh, Iowa for another day or two because I didn't have them go to Washington. I had them come to Chicago and meet us over there, or we went to Colorado. So they went to Colorado with me and we ended up enjoying what was possibly the best month, month and a half that I've ever had in baseball. And I, like you said, I got the opportunity to play with my brother, um, which we were always hoping would happen, but you just, you don't control where you go. Mm-hmm. So the chance that we were going to play together was super slim. Um, he was still hurt at the time when I got called up. Yeah. The, the thumb, and then, the finger, right. Mm-hmm. And then he was in, Iowa at the time rehabbing mm-hmm. and Contreras ended up getting hurt and they were like well is Austin ready like he's still got four more days on his rehab assignment and they said ah, whatever yeah yeah they said whatever just call him up now so he came up and that very first day that he came up we were playing the Brewers and we were getting crushed and Ross came over and was like hey you're gonna go in and throw the last inning um I know I don't need to tell you what to do you've done it before but don't hurt yourself like that kind of thing and I'm and I'm out there going yeah, whatever. Who cares? I'm 35 years old. Like, what better way to go out than blow my arm out on the mound right now? <laughs> just throw as hard as you can, see what you got. Just like Chet Stedman in Rookie of the Year, just lose the ulnar ligament. Oh my God, I would have laughed so hard. But um, so I go jogging out, and I turn around, and uh, my brother's got his gear on. He comes running out. I guess Ross is like, "Hey, I, you're not supposed to play today. Like, you're just here in case right now. Uh, but do you want to go catch Andrew?" And he was like, hell yeah, I want to go catch Andrew. So he throws his gear on, comes running out. And we're on the mound. And I'm going, all right, so uh, first of all, this is freaking awesome. And secondly, (laughs) I go, secondly, 
one's a fastball, two's a curveball. And he goes, and he goes, okay, whatever, just throw the ball. So they go back and I finish warming up and I, my first pitch to him, I throw him a knuckleball and he kind of like catches it and he looks at me and I'm, and I'm like, Hey, you, you didn't listen to the rest of my pitches. Bro. Like you did I got stuff. Yeah. So he's, he's kind of just like waving it. Like, all right, whatever, just throw it. So I'm just throwing whatever I felt like not telling him what's coming. Didn't really care. And I'm standing there uh, on the mound in Wrigley going, this is probably one of the only times in history that somebody that a player standing on, on the mound or on a field in general going, I know I'm done. Like I know personally, my wife knows, I know we're the only two people in the world to know that this is my last year playing. I'm going to retire after this. And I'm standing on a mound in Wrigley throwing knuckleballs at my freaking brother right now. <laughs> this is, it's a movie. Like this is a movie. Script. You should have spiked a curveball. Just had a little fun with it too. I know, right? so i get up and, and then and then to top it off just to like cap it all off i i strike out uh jackie bradley jr to end the inning and we get to walk off the mound like hot stuff like this is, you know and it was it was just so cool to be able to share that and i mean that's something that i'm never going to forget obviously so we ended up finishing out the season and we're sitting at home in october and i'm going what else am i gonna achieve right now like the obviously everybody wants to win a world series, but what are the chances that I, you know, make it through another season without dislocating my shoulder or something? Cause I'm old and broken now, but it was just to the point where I was like this career. I mean, it's a storybook career right now. So we were happy and satisfied and it was difficult. It's always difficult to, to know that it's the end and it's really here, but with what we had achieved in the life we've already lived, it's easier for, for me to look back and go, man, like I wouldn't have done it any differently. You covered a lot and we want to recap that. Uh, but before we recap that, we're going to take a quick break. Again, this is another episode of Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. Again, check us out, give us a like, and give us a follow for all past, present, and future episodes of Unwritten Rules. Check us out online at iowacubs.com on your various tablets as well, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple and Google Podcasts. So you covered a lot there, Andrew, and I'm going to take it step by step just to recap it a little bit. Every time that I talk to you during the season, you embraced Des Moines. You were exploring the area with your wife, with your daughter, with your family that was in town. What did you think of Des Moines you know, not just at the stadium, but just around the, the community, the baseball atmosphere, and how does it rank among your favorite towns that you played in or lived in? It, first of all, I live in Arizona, so it's very green in, in Des Moines. Yep. And we, my wife loved it. We loved going to the parks, to the schools, to the trails, and we're very outdoorsy. So we love being out there um, doing stuff. And here's another thing that I've never, this was one of the first full seasons, obviously, because 2020 was messed up, that we were able to get up and do stuff with our daughter. And usually we're sleeping in till 10 in the morning or not doing anything, maybe grab something to eat and go. Now I got a two-year-old who's waking up at seven in the morning. Well, you mean kids, small kids don't wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning? No? We tried. We tried to lay there and let her sleep, but no, no. No, 7 a.m. would hit and we're rolling, man. Like the day started whether you want to or not. So we were up and out and I and I look back now and I go, it's the greatest gift that could have happened because we went out and explored Des Moines, Iowa, like you name the place we went to, all the places they went with us. 
we went out and did things there. And we thought it was awesome to be able to explore all of the museums and children's museums and like malls and parks and schools and all of the stuff that we got to go see. And it, it was cool because we still, to this day, we talk about people from the Midwest being different. And when I say different, I mean, like, there's a, there's a connection that those people have to their town and their teams and their, their people. And they treat you like family in the way that they talk to you. And you can see it when you go to restaurants or go to museums or wherever we would show up and people would embrace, you know, even though they know, you know, we're either from California or Arizona or wherever we're from, <laughs> there's still that type of personality. And we loved it. Um, there, I firmly believe that we would have looked into moving to that area if it wasn't for the humidity and the bugs. Okay. That's, those are both fair critiques, um, especially once you get into June through August. Um, before Colin has a couple questions, I, I want to bring up something. You talked about the clubhouse dynamic, and you did something from a leadership perspective that I've never seen before. It was every time that a coach, a teammate, a staff member had a birthday – you brought in cake and cupcakes. I've worked here for five years. I've worked in minor league baseball for 12. One, I've never seen that. And two, I've never seen such a simple gesture bring so many genuine smiles. Have you done that your whole career? Uh, did you learn from a veteran as you were coming up? How did that come to be? I just, it was, it was something that I felt was, like you said, a small gesture that could make somebody's day or, or make them feel like, you know, we care, you know, we're, we're a team. And like we were saying earlier, it's your family. You, you're around these guys for eight months out of the year, every day on buses, in locker rooms and clubhouses. And if you were at home, you know, darn well that you'd have a cake at home on your birthday, you know, and a lot of these guys aren't at home and they don't have family and they don't get to see their wives or their moms or their dads or their kids for that matter. So I thought, you know, you show up to the field and you know it's your birthday, but the other guys don't. Um, the least that, that we could do is go look on a chart and see when your birthday is and maybe give you a hug or something or, or make that day a little better. And selfishly, my thoughts are if, if there's cake at the field, then you're happy, right? Like everybody's happy when you see cake when you walk in. So you know after the game, man, we're getting some freaking cake today. Like, <laughs> let's go, let's go win this game. I love it. I mean, I personally was the beneficiary of some of those cupcakes, as was my stomach. So I, I just, I'd never seen anything like that. And just people would chuckle, they laugh, you'd get fucks. It was, it was something out of like Bull Durham that you would see, like in the middle of the season, just somebody getting cake shoved in their face because that's what happened. It was really cool. Well, the, the best part is when you lose a game. So, and you wouldn't think it would be. So you lose a game and we're all coming in and everybody's just kind of whatever. You don't get to play music. You, know, you don't get to party in the locker room, but I'd walk in and I'd pop on that happy birthday song on the, <laughs> on the radio and, and you see all the young guys. Now, Marty, obviously he understood like it's freaking long season, man. Like we got to have fun with it. And even when we lose, we got to be able to come back the next day happy but obviously if we did a bunch of stupid stuff we're not making a big deal in the locker room and having fun but it's your birthday bro like so we lost the game if we win a game and somebody's birthday we have a good time and we laugh and party and 
So I would I would play that song and make everybody get up and sing happy <laughs> happy birthday to them. That's I awesome. love that. I really and all the so all the all the young guys are looking around like are the coaches gonna come in here and get pissed off and like no the coaches are eating cake too. <laughs> you brought it for them. That uh that's awesome. And you talk about the coaching staff and Colin will ask this because I know that he and and Marty have had discussions about your relationship. You guys, it was Marty, it was Desi, it was RV, it was Griffin, it was it was everybody. It was just so such a close knit group. And, and Colin, I know that you talked to to Marty about about Andrew. What were some of the questions that you had with that? Yeah, I think I remember also having a conversation with you just this season, and saying that um, Marty was one of the best player managers and one of the best managers you've had. For someone like you who's had different managers and had different coaches, been in different clubhouses, to say he's maybe your favorite manager or the best manager you've had or the best player manager. And what to um, a player does the player manager mean and how does that just help you on a day-to-day basis when it is the long, the long grind of a season? Well, first, I don't think that the younger guys would really – know what the importance is because they're at that point and they should be this way very focused on what they're doing but as the years go on you start to realize what that has and how much the influence is that the manager has on your day-to-day life as a player they can make your life hell there's plenty of coaches that don't care about that connection and don't care about making it so that these kids have a, a good time and they're comfortable because like i said this is your family and if you know your dad's coming in yelling and screaming at you every day you're probably not going to enjoy what you're doing and if you're not enjoying what you're doing then you're not going to get the best out of you so i think he had a really good connection and i and another thing that was very influential was he's had the opportunity to be a coach from the 90s to whenever and that's a that's a transition period that we went through where guys are seeing this whole generation of baseball switch over to uh, uh, from you got to haze people and pay your dues to what do they say now? Let the kids play. Right. And it's a different generation and that takes some learning. And I think that the coaching staff we had, they recognize that and they were able to do that transition super quick to the point where it's not going to be that awkward. We don't know how to communicate to the guys and get the best out of them. Now, what the win loss record is or what happens during throughout the season is a byproduct, but essentially what you're looking for is getting those kids to the point where when they get called up, they're going to get the best out of them up there. And those guys did it great. So, you know, you talked about your relationship with Marty, vice versa at the end of the year, you know, Marty said to both me and Colin that out of all the players he's coached, and he has coached a lot, you were, if not his most favorite player of all time, one of his top three favorite players of all time. To hear someone or hear something from someone like that who, as you said, has been around the game longer than Colin and I have been alive combined, what, how does that make you feel? That I kind of get worked up now because, like, having a kid of my own, I, I understand when you look at, somebody you know younger where he could be a father figure and to hear him say that is it kind of touches me um a little differently than like when I was younger you know when you look at coaches when you're a young kid but now I kind of understand and I see the importance of 
the relationships that you form with people, um, regardless of if it's a player or a coach, that that's another person, another human being that you're interacting with day in and day out. And the influence and, and the type of job that he's in right now, to be able to say that I'm one of his favorite players that have ever played for him, I mean, that, that goes further than any accolade that I could have gotten this season, you know, hitting home runs or playing baseball with my brother, you know, touching somebody and, and getting a relationship with them is in the forefront of my mind. Now that I've moved to, I'm a dad and I understand what an influence somebody has on somebody. And I would want those people around me to act that way towards my daughter. So I feel like it's just what you do as a person. You, you treat people the right way, you act the right way, and you create relationships. A perfect, positive time to take a quick pause. Again, this is another episode of Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. Check us out. Give us a like and a follow. For all past, present, and future episodes of Unwritten Rules, check us out online at iowacubs.com or on your various tablets on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple and Google Podcasts. You want me to read the next one for you? What's that? So you want to send it to me and I'll read the next You could do it. Go for it. You're, t- you're taking us to break next time. You're taking us to break and you have to say it yeah. in that tone too. Get a microphone as well. Andrew Romine, former Iowa Cub, longtime big leaguer and one of three members in his immediate family with professional baseball experience. Joining us, I just said it. You along with your brother Austin, dad Kevin, all played in the big leagues. Kevin first, obviously you second, Austin third. What was it like growing up in such a baseball-centric household? It was that. It was baseball all the time. And if it wasn't baseball, it was video games or football or soccer or something, chess. It didn't matter. It was something that I could beat my brother at. That's all. (laughs) Well, you were also three years older. I mean, that's a big three-year gap right there. I mean, you're 14, he's 11. You're a man, he's a boy. I mean, you probably bullied him. It lasted until probably when he got into high school and he was a freshman and I was a senior. And then he finally beat me at like a video game or something. And I'm all, boom, you know, slamming my controller. I'm like, because like video game controller, because I knew that that was the end. Like, that's the that's the end of me winning every single time. Because I never ever, and you hear this all the time. I never let them win. No, I never freaking let him win anything. So when he finally beat me at something, it was because he earned it. And I knew from that point on, he's gonna start beating me at stuff. So you had it was run. fun. Yeah, I had my run. It was a good 17, 18 year run there, man. I won everything, but it was cool. It was cool to see him progress uh, and become who he was as a baseball player and, and as a man in general. Um, he didn't get the luxury of going to college like I did and having those three years to kind of figure out who you were. And I was gone and he ended up signing out of high school and goes to pro ball right away. And I know that's a big transition for a lot of people to go from high school where your parents are doing everything for you, paying for everything. And now they're like, here, here's a little bit of money. Go live your life and go be an adult. Yeah. And that's hard to do. But absolutely. No, when I mean, we'd come home from school and it was, you know, one, did you do your homework? And two, did you go hit in the cage today? And we'd be out there just hours hours and hours every day playing baseball hitting in the cage hitting in the cage talking to each other about what we want to do because both my parents were working and they wouldn't come home until the sun was down and it was us trying to figure out how to play baseball based off of my dad making tweaks here and there and watching video because we would record each other so that my dad could see it later 
analytics before analytics, video before video. That whole like grainy old crappy oh, yeah. razor phone video. Yeah. What did you guys have more of? Broken windows around the house from flying baseballs and projectiles or broken bones from fighting? No broken bones, man. That's no impressive. broken bones. Yeah. So, and I was reckless, dude. My parents will tell you I was totally reckless from the age that I could walk. So I'm amazed that I didn't break bones, but um, broken windows, not so much broken stuff inside the house all the time. So we would play roll up socks as the baseball and then use a pillow as a bat. And we would, you know, you hit it over the stairs and it's a home run. You hit it over there. It's a double triple like that stuff. And I don't know why we were so dumb. We wouldn't just move the things that were breakable and like put them in the cupboard. We didn't do that. Out of so sight, we, out of mind. <laughs> we, we were so stupid, man. And we're breaking old like glass figurines that my parents gave to her and my, and obviously my, my parents laugh about it now, but at the time it wasn't very fun. So. Yeah. You obviously have a close relationship with your brother, but you being the older of the two, how did your relationship with your dad you know, factor into you taking up baseball and then baseball ultimately come, becoming the career choice that you had? So I don't think that there was any doubt in either of my, my mind or my brothers that we were wanting to play Major League Baseball. That was always what we were planning on doing. But there is that time when you get to like college, uh, late high school, when you start to realize, all right, this is a possibility. Um, my dad, I don't, he never forced us to play baseball. He, he always pushed us hard in whatever we were doing to be the best that we could be, but he was never forcing us just to be baseball players. So in that sense, we were grateful because we got to play football and soccer and I ran track and, you know, any, pretty much anything we wanted to do, they were backing us in that. But once I got to college and I realized, all right, so I see, I see what the competition is. And I, I, I'm starting to gauge that I'm pretty good. Yeah. It's not like you went to an NAI school. You went to Arizona state. I mean, you went to the same alma mater as Barry Bonds. It's, you know, it's a pretty clear indicator you're there. We were playing top teams and these tournaments were hard. And I, and trust me, I saw plenty of guys who were more talented than I was bigger and stronger and faster. And that's when I started to realize, all right, I'm, I'm pretty good, but I need to be better. I need to be the best where I come from. So if I'm not going to be the guy who hits 40 home runs or steals a hundred bases or something like that, I have to do all the other stuff. Right. So that's when I started to really hone in my skills on, I'm going to figure out how to feel the ground ball perfectly. I'm going to feel, I'm going to figure out how to bunt perfectly, how to run bases perfectly. And that for me was, I think the changing point in my career. And I had a, at the time in, in college, I had an infield coach who was, his name was Andy Stankowitz and he played in the big leagues with the yeah. Yankees for a while. And that was the first professional coach that I had where he started to show me kind of what it takes if, if that makes sense, like what I'm going to have to do and accomplish in order to get to the next level and be successful there too. So that, that was a big step for me going into that different type of coaching in college and me getting professional coaching at that time where a lot of guys are just getting, I mean, no offense to some colleges, but they, they don't have coaches in college very often who played 10, 15 years in big leagues like I got. So, and a dad who played 10 years, you know, like it's, it's a weird dynamic that my brother and I were very lucky to have. Um, so 
being able to transition and get that early was a huge, huge benefit for the both of us. What are some of your first memories of baseball, either playing with your brother or playing in high school or even just, I mean, your, your dad played for the Boston Red Sox, you know, just going to a game, watching him play. You know, what, what are some of your, your first memories of baseball that the light just goes on? Oh, I, I like that. I want, I want to do that. My first memories of baseball were when I was, my dad was with the Red Sox and I was about seven when he retired. And I can remember running around in the locker rooms and stealing giant bowls of bubble gum as big as round as a basketball and like yeah i would do that as a 33 year old let alone pretty much hiding in wade boggs's locker and not knowing what i'm doing or the importance of what's going on in there or who these people are um it was it's vague and it's hazy but i still remember a little bit of being out on the field in fenway um kids days and stuff running the bases and like hanging out, giving, giving guys knuckles, like high fives and stuff to like Roger Clemens and Wade Boggs and Jody Reed, things like that. It was just at the time, no clue. You know, I just thought this is life. This is what people's dads do. You know, they just have dads who play in the big leagues. And um, As the years went on, I, I pretty quickly understood that that was very special, but I don't know, er- earliest years, man, like, I just love playing baseball. Like I would take my dad to the field and make him hit me 200 ground balls. And, and he's like, are you sure you don't want to go hit in a cage or something? I'm like, no, no, no. Like hit me more ground balls. I need to be better. And he's like, no, you're pretty freaking good. Like I think we're good <laughs> with the ground balls already. And I'm like, no, no, no. I missed one, uh, five hits to go and I need to move my feet differently. And he's like, Jesus, man, like you don't need to be perfect on it you're pretty good enough already we can we can move on to hitting now that I mean that's not the background that Colin and I had but no it's just being able to go into the clubhouse at Fenway Park at age seven and as you said going into Wade Boggs's locker having no idea who Wade Boggs is or the prowess that he carries on the baseball field that that's pretty cool when and you talked about this a little bit was there a time or just you know, playing baseball clicked like, and, and you you said that you had some idea when you went to Arizona State that you were pretty good. You talked to your a couple coaches that made you do things that would elevate your game. Was there a certain time either then or when you were in the minors that you're like, all right, like this is gonna work. I'm not just gonna get drafted three years later, released, and then figure out what I'm gonna do with my with my life. Are you asking me if I ever got comfortable and felt like <laughs> maybe maybe not comfortable? Uh, let let's go with another c word, confident. Confidence. I don't think that the real like confidence came until I signed a big league contract. Okay. And that, and that I think that's how it should be. I don't think anybody, cause this game is so unpredictable. You could be one of the best people at what you do and still not make it based off of somebody's in front of you or, you know, you, you get traded and you know, things just don't work out. So I don't, I was never confident enough in the minor leagues to go, yeah, this is going to happen. Now I believed it. And I, and I was ready to put in the work that it was going to take, but no, absolutely not. There was no comfortable feeling ever. I was every single day I showed up to the field. I was nervous. I I had some anxious feelings of like, I got to get two hits today, man. And when that goes away, I think you got a problem. Like you shouldn't show up to the field. I talked to guys who are making $30 million a year 
and they're shown to the field like they got butterflies and that's how it should be you know in anything that you love you should be anxious you should have this little feeling of um, excitement no matter how much money you're making or how many home runs you've hit or what your numbers are that's kind of what that's kind of what it's all about right like getting that feeling finding those things that give you that feeling my wife makes fun of me now because I wake up, you know, I get up early and I've got a nine to five life and I'm working and stuff. So I got to get things done in the morning. And the only competition that I get throughout the day is going and jumping in our cold plunge that's 45 degrees outside <laughs> and trying and trying to stay in there as long as I can. And that's like, I'm just trying to find that feeling again, that feeling of like, this is something I desire or like want to be, I want to compete. I want to fight. I want to win. You know, so I don't, I don't believe I ever really got comfortable it's signing a big league deal when I was in Detroit. That was freaking cool. Like being able to walk into the locker room with my head up and my chest out a little bit going, yeah, I earned this. Like I, I worked my butt off to get here and I finally got to the point where, and, and nobody was saying they weren't going to send me down. They could still send me down. They just had to pay me more money to play in <laughs> to do that, to make that transaction. Exactly. No, you, you you did it. I mean, you obviously got drafted by the Angels, made your big league debut with the Angels, uh, had a very successful tenure with the Tigers. I, I want to go through the day that you got your first big league call because it, it, it's special in different ways to people. Do you remember that day, what happened, how you found out those 24 hours? So we had finished our season. I was in AA. I finished our season in Arkansas and drove back took us like two or three days to get home, towing a car behind us, um, moved into our apartment in, in Tempe that we were going to stay for the off season. And a couple of weeks, like almost three weeks had gone by at this point. And it's September 21st or something like that. And I'm getting ready to go play for um, Team USA. I was going to go play for Team USA because I hadn't got called up yet. So I was still eligible to go to those tournaments. And so I had gone over to the angels complex, took a couple ground balls, took some swings in the cage. I really hadn't done anything. I was just taking time off. The season ended. So I get back home and that night at like nine or 10 o'clock at night, I get a call and I'm looking at my phone and I'm going, it's the GM of the angels. Like I didn't even, first of all, I didn't even know I had his number in my phone. <laughs> and secondly, what the hell is he calling me for? And so I pick it up and he goes, Hey, Andrew, uh, how's it going? What are you doing right now? And he's like, yeah, so you're not getting on a flight tomorrow to go. I was supposed to go to Puerto Rico. I think it was for the qualifiers for team USA. And I was scheduled to fly out the next day. And they said, you're not getting on that flight. And then he goes, you're getting on another flight and you're coming to Anaheim. And I was like, what? Like I just finished double a, I haven't been playing baseball for three weeks. I don't What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, uh, Ibar got hurt and we need a shortstop. And I was like, okay. Well, I mean, at least the, uh, the Tempe to, to Anaheim flights a little bit shorter to Puerto Rico. So you could pack a little lightly. Exactly. So, and Anaheim was where my parents were, were living. Oh, wow. So I get off the phone. I look at my wife and I tell her, I call my dad. I tell him and my mom, and I jump on a flight the next morning. I didn't even get out that night because it was too late. Yeah. So I got on a flight the next morning and it was a day game the next day. So I'm flying in at like six in the morning to get there. I'm trying to figure out 
if I even have enough baseball bats to get through a game because I, I don't have anything left. The season was over. And I get in and there, I'm starting that day. So I started and I end up, I'm over four that day with a couple of strikeouts. Like the guy looked like he was throwing 120. And it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was just a whirlwind, especially because I hadn't. So two weeks before that, I went to, I went home to see my parents and I went to an angel game and got tickets from one of the guys on the team who I had played with the prior season. Yeah. So, so I was sitting in the stands two week early, two weeks earlier, watching a Anaheim Angels game, and then two weeks later, I was starting on the field <laughs> and having a very quick turnaround. What was that conversation like with your dad? I mean, one, you get to call him and tell him that, hey, you were a big leaguer now, so am I. But also, you get to go back home to where they live. I mean, it's uh, what was that call like? The call to him is is kind of hazy to me i was at that point it, it was a lot of flooding of emotion into my head and i can't even remember what i said or what i did the only thing i do know is that i got off the phone with him and after you know talking to my my mom and my dad at the same time and i got off the phone with him and my wife's like hey we should go eat dinner celebrate and we're like all right well where are we gonna go um we should go to a nice restaurant and i'm like I don't, we don't have the money to go to a nice restaurant right now. Like, we're not big leaguers yet. And we haven't got a paycheck yet, but we, I know we end up going to a nice restaurant and my, both of my parents, I think, I think my dad, I'm pretty sure that he had that like very proud father feeling, but he almost came off like, um, like, yeah, of course you got called up like that. You, you deserve it. Like you're yeah. good. Like you're really good. You know? But in my head, I'm going, holy crap, I got called up. You know, everybody that gets called up for the first time is thinking, holy crap, it really happened. So, and then my mom's sad, like, or not sad, but she's like crying, happy, you know, yeah. the whole Flood of mom thing. Yeah. And I'm trying not to get emotional and not cry myself because we're so excited. And my wife's staring at me while I'm on the phone. So <laughs> it was, it was crazy. And, and we had, a really good time with it. I got to have everybody there. My parents were there. My, my younger brother was there because he was done with his season and he was in the minor leagues. So I got family and friends who all got to be there 20 minutes away from our house. And it was an awesome debut. This is also a cool story. And you told me a little bit about this this year. You were present for your brother's debut and a certain manager couldn't get in touch with him. Um, take us through that story. We got some weird stories, right, dude? Yeah. Like, these, these aren't normal every day. Yeah. You went to high school, you went to college, you signed, you went to the minor leagues, you got called up, you played your baseball career. You know, like my brother is driving back from wherever. I don't even know what league he was in. And I'm on the angels at this point, a couple of years in, I think like one or two years in. And I get, a, I get somebody that comes over to uh, our locker room from the other locker room, one of the clubhouse guys. And he goes, Hey, Joe wants to talk to you. And I was like, that's awesome. Who the hell is Joe? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, Joe Girardi. And I was like, I don't, I don't know Joe. I've never talked to Joe. How does he even know who I am? Um, and he goes, yeah, he, he just, he said he needs to talk to you right now. And I was like, this is really, really weird. You know, we're like hours before a game. And so I walk into the middle because the clubhouse has opened up and there's like this middle shared family area right there. 
And he's standing in there. So I walk over and I'm like, hi. Hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. I'm Andrew. You wanted to see me. What's up, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, what do you want? <laughs> and he goes, so he goes, hey, have you talked to your brother lately? I was like, no, the last I heard he's driving home from wherever he was. And he goes, yeah, I can't get a hold of him. And I was like, like my heart starts racing because now I'm, I know exactly what's going on. Why else would they be trying to get a hold of him? So I'm, I'm like, okay, well, what do you need from me? And he goes, can you call him, try and get a hold of him? So I go, I'm run back into the locker room and I pick up my phone. I called him like five times in a row, call, call. And he finally picks up and he goes, what do you, what do you want? Like we're walking around in the mall or something like that um, with my wife and, you know, my phone's just off like buzzer, like whatever. I'm like, dude, it's freaking September and you can't have your phone on silent right now. Like what is wrong with you? And he goes, what do you want? I said, you need to answer your phone and you need to call Joe Girardi right now. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? So I got to tell him basically. And I didn't say it because obviously Joe didn't tell me, but I was like, I was like, this is an important phone call. Like you need, you, you need to keep your phone off vibrate on loud and you need to call the manager of the New York Yankees. Yeah. And I'm pretty much telling him he's, getting the call up to the big leagues without actually telling him the words. So that was a really cool experience to be able to share with him. Did he show up by the time that he actually got back up to the big leagues? Were you guys still playing them or were they playing somebody else? No. So he ended up starting the next day. They found a flight for him, like a red eye. He got out that night, uh, came in and started the next day. And I was across the field from him in the other dugout while he was making his major league debut. My parents are in the, in the stands. The words, uh, Joe wants to talk to you, should have meant more to him than it did to you. Right? I mean, that's a big brother moment. Like, dude, you can't do that. But call the manager of the New York Yankees. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was special. That's pretty awesome. Just uh, just a couple final questions before you know, we duck out of here. And we talked about your career with the Angels, Tigers, uh, stints obviously with, with, with the Cubs and with Seattle and with Texas. What are some of your favorite – I won't even go with moments, but – places, stadiums, team hotels, restaurants. What are some of the, the locations and the times that stick out to you? Just remember, I'm from the Pacific Northwest before you answer this question. <laughs> everybody, everybody loves Seattle. Everybody loves That's Seattle. That's a great answer. Um, no, it never rains actually, there. Oh, the summers there are, are awesome. Everybody yeah. loves the summers there. And anytime you go to visit or play there or anything like that, everybody loves playing there. The city's cool. Uh, it's very unique. Uh, while I was there, I was like, all right, I'm only going to be here for like one year. So I'm, I'm living it here. And I got a, a sky rise, like a 35th floor apartment that overlooked downtown, got to see the bay and everything there. It was awesome place. Um, I rode a, I rode an electric skateboard to and from the field. I didn't have a car. <laughs> yeah. It was really, really cool. We got sushi all the time and we took full advantage. My wife enjoyed being out there too. Uh, we had a really good team while I was there. You know, we had Cano and um, Seeger and Gordon and all those guys. You know, we we had a great team. That was the year that we started out with um, Diaz was closing and we had like the most uh, one run game wins in the first half of history or something like that. And we ended up falling off at the end. But Seattle usually does, which unfortunately was the I'm case get that it year. Here. <laughs> I know it's tough, man, watching that success early. But um, New York's awesome. 
the city is unlike any other. Um, Fenway's by far my favorite stadium. Like that history that they have there and being able to play in that old stadium that is just so historic. You're stepping into the same dugout as Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And you can't you can't fake that. But Pittsburgh's cool. I like that stadium. Great backdrop. Like cool looking stadium. I know a lot of guys like playing there. But the city of Baltimore, like right where you stay downtown on the bay. Totally cool. Like walking around down there. Don't go outside of there, obviously. Very not safe. So but in that general um, square, it's nice. Yeah, the downtown area right there by the water, super nice. Really cool. Lots of stuff, lots of restaurants, great place. You know, I would walk to and from the field every day. Really fun. Um, let me think. Any like hot any hotels that are just like, man, I would have live there for oh that. man the so last year when we went with the cubs to um was it yeah it was the marlins when we went to the marlins i mean the hotel we stayed at was like like the nicest by far the nicest hotel i've ever seen i walked in and and I, i've been to a lot of places yeah. and played a lot of years and i walked into this hotel and i pulled my phone out and I started recording it and I sent it to my <laughs> that that's when you know when the iPhones are out and it's scanning, here's a panoramic, you know it's nice. I told her, I told her, hey, you missed out on this trip. You should have came on this one. <laughs> that's pretty cool. The fact that Principal Park didn't get mentioned with Fenway is I mean, we'll let it slide, but <laughs> you know what? When they put up a freaking uh batter's eye, then I'll put that stadium in there. All right. My my batting average is a hundred points lower at home. There's no coincidence to that, right? You know what? We'll we'll channel this up to the proper people. Maybe they'll take a listen and we'll, they'll, they'll take some notes on the, the batter's eye. You um, know what though? But before I talk junk on the on the owners or whoever's in charge of that, I will say that I saw something and I reposted this about the owners giving back to the employees that good. worked there. Yep. Which I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard about that very often, but for them to be able to do that for people. And even if it's just a couple of dollars, like the amount that they're giving back to people, super cool. Like that's, that's how businesses should be run the way that the Iowa Cubs are run. It was more than a couple of dollars and it was very, very special. Um, it was something that I've never seen working in baseball before. So the fact that you recognize that the story is carried and rightfully so. Uh, one other question for you before we, before we duck out here. I guess I have two more. You play with a lot of players. Is there anybody who you saw either take batting practice or hit a ball or throw a ball that you're just like, oh, my God, like the talent that that guy's had, either arm talent or defensive talent or just the sound of the ball hitting the bat. Is there anybody that sticks out to you? There's a couple of people that stick out. I got one – Watching Omar Vizquel, even at the age he was at, he would co he was coaching in the Angels system when I was there. Then he was one of the coaches in Detroit, and he would still come out and take ground balls and be like, "Oh, you just got to do this. You just got to do that." And we're like, "Oh, we don't do that. You do that. That's why you're you, and I'm me because I can't do that. That's crazy. Like you practice that way. Other people don't practice that way because we don't do that in the game. And then watching." Two people, two separate people take batting practice. One was Josh Hamilton, which watching the ball carry off of his bat, it looked like he was hitting golf balls. 
And then the sound of the ball off of Mark Trumbo's bat during batting practice was a different sound that I had never heard until I played with him in Anaheim. And he would hit, I'm not exaggerating, line drives off of the third deck in Toronto. And I'm going, I'm going, dude, I can't hit, I can barely hit the second deck. And I'm launching as far as I can. You're back putting every <laughs> putting everything you can into it. I'm, I'm pulling an oblique doing this if I try. So, and he'd just be mashing balls and like you you hear it hit the bat and it sounds like he breaks the bat because he hits it so hard. It's it's kind of cool. You can tell that there's a different thing going on with those guys. Are there any pitchers that like you step out of the box, you see their fastball, curveball, or cutter that you're just like, huh, this is this is crazy. Yeah. Uh, Chapman was the most uncomfortable at bat that I've ever had in my life. Um, facing Lincecum was the most deceiving thing I've ever seen watching a guy throw 102 miles an hour who's five foot nothing and, you know, 100 and whatever pounds. And um, Kluber, wa- Kluber was for some reason, like, I just could not get the bat to hit the ball I, he would just throw the ball and it would end up somewhere else um i never got a chance to really face obviously the guys on my team in detroit like verlander or Scherzer or anything but i hear that those guys are crazy um not fun at bats to have who else those are good ones there's endless people man i mean you hit a home run off of an eight-time all-star closer who's gonna go to the hall of fame like i got i got into a good count I got into well full count. He can't walk me, so you're not going to walk the bottom of the lineup. So I figured, and I was and I was hot though because I had just got called up. You were you were you were red hot. It was I was I was crushing it. Yeah, yeah. So and the confidence is something that is huge when you're having it bad, especially off of a guy like him. And I'm going. I had some motivation. The White Sox had released me the year before that, and I was like all right, well, I'm going to freaking show you guys then if you're going to release me. So I'm doing everything I can to beat them. And I'm thinking he's, he's going to try and blow one by me right here. And I'm going to get to a fastball in and I'm going to hit this thing hard. I was just like, I'm just going to hit it hard. I'm not going to strike barrel it up. See where it goes. I, I uh, watched that, that video in the coach's office with Marty and Desi and they were obviously freaking out, but they both were like, that is the one spot you cannot throw to Romine. That is his hot spot. Like he, he's going to send that every single time. He's like, if you throw a fastball, like he's getting to that spot right there. And I was like, I obviously had no idea. I was like, this is cool. But they were like analyzing the, the swing and the hot spot and all, everything. It was great. It was funny how it worked out because it was kind of like a culmination of changing something. And I'm sure I talked to you about it, how I hurt myself changing that and and getting to the point where i felt comfortable with this new swing and i pulled a freaking oblique doing it like that's what happened during the season i was changing my swing physically and it it causes problems sometimes physically so to be able to get back still have it like when i came back i was afraid that after i came back from my injury i wasn't going to have it i was going to be cold and then i drop my average and get released and you know the whole panic mode goes again after yeah. you get hurt and I still had it and I kept hitting. And then when I got called up and I did that, I was like, that's pretty cool to see the adjustment carry over. And then I succeeded with it in the big league. So it was really fun. 
hitting a home run like that, crosstown rival, doing it in front of a sold-out crowd, do you remember the reaction? Is it one of those where you black out until you cross home plate, or you you know? Oh, I remember. See, I told you I was. I remembered that this was the end. So I and I was lucky. I'm lucky enough to play long enough to know, like, take it in. You know, people tell you take it in, and I always tell the young guys, like, take it in, man. You know, this is your debut or whatever. And they'll probably look back and go, oh, I don't remember a lot of it because there's overwhelming and your brain starts to run. But I remember every freaking breath I took, like every pitch that was thrown, every at bat I have. And I can distinctly remember going like, this is, this is big, man. Like this is a big situation, a big at bat right here. And I remember watching him walk around on the mound, you know, rubbing the ball up and thinking about what he's going to throw. And, and I'm going, I got to do something here that's memorable. Like I got to, I got to put the ball in play or I got to, you know, drive a run in or do something and jogging around the bases. I can, I can remember every step I took. I can remember looking in the dugout to a group of guys that I didn't, I mean, some of them I played with in the minor leagues, most of them I never played with before. Yeah. didn't know me, didn't do spring with and the elation on their face kind of matched mine. And I'm sure they were laughing like, this guy's like 35 years old. What's he getting so freaked out? We're in last place. We're not going anywhere this year. And uh, to have that kind of reaction out of guys. And I sent, I sent a picture to, um, to um, uh, Wiz. I sent it to Wiz yeah. and to Wisdom. And it was him standing up outside the dugout on the top of the steps. And he's like, yeah. And he and that pictures, <laughs> it's hilarious. Like the facial expression. And then my facial expression back to him, like that was, that was it. Like, that's it to me. That's, that's major league baseball and playing it like a kid. When you crossed home plate, there's, there's a picture of just like the look on your face. It's like the mix between a 35 year old and a five year old experiencing joy. That that was the se- after talking about the uh, hot path or the hot swing path and everything. That was the second thing Marty talked about was he never shows that kind of emotion. Like he's got to be loving this and <laughs> just going off about it. No, I was always. I mean, I've always been that type of player who was just kind of you know this is this is how you do things. You don't show people up and you play hard. And I mean, it it never meant that I wasn't having fun. Like I never showed that much emotion when I was around you guys and playing in the minor leagues or anything. And I never did before in the big leagues, but like I said, just being there and knowing like, this is the last experience I'm going to have. And it just kind of came out. Like I, I look back and I wish that I had played that way and like shown that emotion the whole time when I was playing. Made a count. That's awesome. I guess my uh, final question, um, now that you talk about the off seasons before as you were younger and then as you got older, kind of taking more time and stuff, now that you're not looking to a spring training or you're not looking for another full season and trying to be healthy or train for that, um, you talk about a nine to five and jumping in your pool to have the competitive nature. How do you kind of uh, go about this off season different now that it's not necessarily the off season, it's just a new it's life. second part of life? Yeah. Uh, I have a routine now that, <laughs> yeah. that that doesn't include crushing my body to get ready, um, which it's changed a bit. Um, recently, I've created this new one that my wife will make fun of me for, but I get up at like 6.30 and go work out, go jump in my cold plunge and do some sauna and I'm up and awake and ready to go and showered by the time my daughter gets up. And then I get to have breakfast with them. 
and share the mornings, go on a walk or something before I head over to work and start doing what I'm doing now, which is doing mortgage loans and getting people into houses and helping them refi their homes and live their dreams in their dream houses. So it's an interesting transition, but like I showed you, sitting on computers or making phone calls and stuff, um, I'm lucky enough to have lived my dream at a very young age. So doing this now, it's almost like the new dream because I get to live at home and I get to sleep in my bed every night. I get to see my family every day. I don't have to live out of a suitcase anymore. I don't have to travel around to hotels. And when I go to cool cities, it's on vacation and not for work now. So the trade-off for me, if I, if I have to sit around and make a few phone calls and help some people get loans, then I would all love to do this for the rest of my life. This would be a great life to live. Awesome. That's, that's pretty good perspective right there on the, on the weekends. I do baseball lessons too. So I don't go crazy. I was going to ask if you, yeah, if you, if you've completely gotten rid of it, so you are giving lessons now. Yeah, I couldn't, I just cold Turkey baseball. I would lose my mind. Now I did make my phone calls to, to go do some coaching and I'm not canceling that out. Like I'm, I'll probably make some more phone calls next off season and talk to people about what kind of positions they have. But right now my wife and I sat down and we talked and it just wasn't really what we wanted right now after spending 15 plus years in baseball life where it's crazy. And now that we have a two-year-old, we kind of said, you know, we'd like to have a home base and, and stay here for more than four months at a time and get to build a relationship with my family. I think my final question is, and I told you this when you told me you were retiring, I said that it's fun watching you play because you play baseball the right way. You handled your career the right way. What is that right way to you? Yeah, how, how did you learn the right way? If you could give our fans or a player listening to this what the right way is, because you do it. How did you do it? I, I would love to take credit for how I did things, but my parents were the ones that taught me how and why. And I think, I think the bigger one that you need to focus on is the why. Why are you doing it? Why are you playing baseball? Are you playing baseball because you love the game and you want to be respectful to the game and you want to get the best out of yourself? Then I, I think if those are your whys, then you're going to be successful. And everybody's different. Um, everybody's personality is different. Everybody's life is different. And there's going to be hard times and good times. But I think if you find out your why, then you you have a better chance of being a happier person and creating a, a career that you can be happy about and you can look back and be proud of how you handled it. So for me, it was, I, it's funny because I always go back to some small thing that my mom used to say when she was coaching me in soccer and she would say, play hard, have fun. And then the kids on my team, we would all yell, drink Sprite. You know, like something crazy, but like the, the, the big part was, you know, play hard and, and have fun because if you're not doing those two things, then I don't think that you should be playing baseball because it's a game and it will always be a game and you're lucky for every single day that you get to do it. So go out there and never, never take it easy on people play as hard as you can, but more importantly, have fun because it's not going to last very long. 
I think it's have fun, play hard, eat cake. If, if this past year, to yeah, to do it. yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I like cake. that. Celebrate your birthdays <laughs> and eat cake. Well, uh, Andrew Romine joining us on Unwritten Rules. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Hope you're enjoying retired life. It was a great 2021 season, and uh, now you get to wake up your daughter from a nap. So, thank you guys. I appreciate you having me on. We really appreciate it. Andrew Romine joining us on Unwritten Rules again. Thank you so much for everybody listening, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.